Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the struggle for the 21st century. I'm your host, Misha Oslin, and I am very happy today to be joined by Alex Josky to talk about his new book, a book making some pretty big waves uh, here and I'm sure around the world, Spies and Lies, How China's Greatest Covert Operations Fooled the World. Alex, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, this uh, your, your book, which uh, as anyone who uh, has read it or or uh, even just listened to the title can uh, know and understand, is about um, intelligence operations uh, on the part of the Chinese intelligence services. But you take a particular spin on it, which is to talk about the influence operations. So before we get into that, um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your background. You um, talk about that a, a bit in the book about why the influence operations in particular are of interest to you, whereas um, not only uh, amateurs, but professionals as well, as you point out in the book, always focus on the more traditional intelligence gathering operations. Um, you were the the youngest ever analyst at the Australian, uh, at ASPE, the Australian uh Security Policy Strategic Institute. Policy. Strategic, right. Sorry, the Australia, just blanking there for a second. The Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Um, uh, for those who, who don't know you, you're still extremely young, which I'm sure everyone points out whenever you do an interview or do a talk, as you did at Hoover uh, recently. Um, but you did spend time. You spent six years living in China. So tell us a little bit about your path to um, coming to write the book, and then, then we'll dive into what you talk about. Yeah, I've always had a connection to China. You know, I'm half Chinese and I spent six years living there as a, as a kid and a teenager and spent some of my formative years there. And then I came back to Australia, did high school, went to university, got back into Chinese. But it was really only when I started looking at these more political sides of China that I think I really invested in it and um, <clears throat> tried hard to learn the language because I felt I had a, a kind of an outlet for it when I was studying what the Chinese Communist Party was doing uh, at my university when I was an undergraduate. And I could see that, you know, you had these Chinese government-backed student associations that were really coordinating closely with Chinese officials, trying to censor information, trying to hold protests, trying to welcome Chinese leaders, holding patriotic activities and so on. And one of the clear strengths of of the work that you do, the research, uh, and and you're not at ASPE right now. You're you're in private consulting, but is the Chinese language and the ability, uh, as well as the discipline, to go very deeply into sources, which the book is is chock full of, which is not always the case with books that are talking about China's China's role in the world. And so that alone, I think, gives it a a credibility that that is is critical to what you what you talk about. Um, uh, it, it is your first book, and it's it's a very impressive study of what you point out is is probably um, at least equal, if not even a, a greater part of China's uh, strategy towards the world, which is influence campaigns. And again, we're we're used to looking at more traditional intelligence gathering operations, espionage, and uh, uh, whether it's industrial espionage, government espionage, uh, and and the like. And on the podcast, uh, we've we've had Matt Brazil and Anna Puglisi 
Um, I've talked with with some others as well, uh, and you know, regularly talk with with folks who are who are in this world. Um, but but you really take a, a particularly, you know, unique, I think, and and deep dive into influence campaigns. Can you start us off by talking about what those influence campaigns are and why why are they so important? I mean, it's just influence, right? Yeah, well, that's the reaction of a lot of people. And that's exactly why it's been so overlooked. And that's why it was so gratifying to study, because uh, I think a lot of this is really new ground and stuff that, and a lens through which Chinese government activities and particularly Chinese intelligence agencies haven't been looked at before. Uh, But influence operations have always been my main interest, because that's what really, I think, changed the debate in Australia, starting maybe 2017, really picking off in 2018, when we saw you know, Chinese government connected business figures donating extensively to Australian politicians, and in some cases, specifically trying to shape Australian policy on issues like the South China Sea. And this led to you know, the ends of, of several political careers. And it also really educated the Australian public on the importance of, of influence work of, or what we call foreign interference, where there's actually a, a covert coercive or corrupting element that takes it from, you know, just people talking, people engaging, sharing information, swapping opinions to something that's actually more sophisticated and and not appropriate in a democratic or just a a fair fair political system. Uh, But this is something that was so clearly a focus for the Chinese government. But to me, it wasn't something that I thought was really reflected in the way people were studying China and its engagement with the outside world. And when I started looking at this, I had no idea and I didn't really expect the Ministry of State Security or other intelligence agencies to play such a large role. So that's what I really focused on in this in this book, this this interface between intelligence operations and and influence. Yeah. And and I should note, uh, first of all, that you are joining us from Australia, uh, Sydney, I'm assuming. And oh, in Canberra. Okay, so you're you're in Canberra and. uh, the book, though, really deeply, for I think the reason it, it will resonate and is resonating with Americans, you spend an enormous amount of time talking about America. I mean, you do talk about Australia and some others, uh, um, but more briefly, and actually very much focus uh, on the Americans. And as, as you've just noted, you're talking primarily, though not exclusively, but primarily in the book about uh, the Ministry of State Security, MSS, which I, I guess in a shorthand would be the equivalent of the CIA or or Britain's MI6, meaning they don't deal with internal security. They're focused externally, though obviously there are there are lines that are crossed all the time. And so I think the first question that someone uh, might ask re- reading the book, and you do explain it, but I want to give you a chance to talk about it, is why the MSS? Why wouldn't uh, foreign interference or influence campaigns better be run or be better run, I guess is the way to put it, uh, be better run uh, out of, let's say, something in the foreign ministry or or a, a direct propaganda ministry. Why are the the spies, so to speak, those who are uh, tasked with gathering foreign information so proficient or have become so proficient at running these influence campaigns? And then actually want to talk about what that means. Yeah, it's a really good question because I think you don't see the same dedication to an emphasis on these sorts of influence operations in in most other intelligence agencies. I really think a lot of this is in some ways peculiar to China. 
or that China has really developed its own practices and traditions of influence work. I mean, of course, the KGB was very prolific in this area as well, but I think there are some, some sort of specific features of China's influence operations that are really interesting. And part of that is just that from the very beginning, there's been this explicit integration and deliberate integration of what they call United Front work and intelligence work. And United Front work is was really a bit of a mysterious term to people a couple of years ago, but now it's it's really a key concept for understanding Chinese Communist Party influence overseas. And it essentially refers to this idea of building up relationships with influence over, leverage over key individuals and groups outside of the Chinese Communist Party who are in some way aligned with the Chinese Communist Party. So not necessarily communists, but people who have you know, shared goals or can be steered in ways that benefit the Chinese Communist Party. And from the very beginning, you know, from the Chinese Communist Party's period as an underground revolutionary organization, they've emphasized integrating this with intelligence. So you have this seemingly legitimate veneer of United Front work, of diplomatic work, of propaganda work, of you know, going out and just making connections with people, which is not illegal at all. You know, all countries do this. But I think the the extent to which this is systematically integrated with covert operations in China is, is really quite interesting and is part of what makes them so successful. Uh, so, you know, the, the Ministry of State Security, what it brings to this is really the ability to add a covert element to what is just influence, to turn it into interference, to give it that sort of dedication and backing, uh, the tradecraft of being able to, uh, you know, manipulate people, to gather intelligence on them, to blackmail, extort them, uh, and also I think to bring the political backing to these operations. Because one thing that stood out in the Ministry of State Security was how so many of its top officers were extremely well connected to Chinese Communist Party leaders. Some of them were of that that family themselves. There were sons and daughters of Chinese Communist Party leaders. So a lot of what they were doing was also offering foreigners access to the inner sanctum of the Chinese Communist Party. And that's something that, you know, technically any agency with good political connections could do. But I think it speaks to the sensitivity of offering that access and the and, and the access of the Ministry of State Security itself, that it was playing this role as a broker between foreigners and the core of the Chinese Communist Party. And the way that they do this, and this I think is where uh, your book uh, will really resonate again with, with those who've been in China or Asian studies, it is not uh, in the dark alley, alleys. It's it's not you know finding people in bars. Uh, it is through setting up ostensibly open intellectual and international exchange organizations, inviting Westerners to China or coming to the United States, finding partners, and doing this all above board. So, is can you talk a little bit about that and how unique that is? Yeah, I, I often say that, you know, this is really one of the striking features of Chinese covert operations uh, is, is the reliance on cover and the extent to which they really trust their cover. They, they, they live it like skin. Uh, and, and you can see that in these MSS operations where they're not just, you know, appearing one day undercover as a diplomat. They're setting up their own front institutions that are pretty much entirely staffed, probably funded, and run by undercover intelligence officers. And this is really useful for them for a lot of reasons. You know, you, you can control these front organizations, get them to do exactly what you want in a way that is harder if you're relying on another 
ministry for cover, for example. Uh, but the weakness and why it made, I think, these operations uniquely discoverable through open source research was just the fact that once you can recognize something as a front that is fully staffed by undercover MSS officers, that gives you essentially a list of undercover MSS officers. It gives you a whole history of interactions between these individuals and these organizations and their foreign targets. And you can follow these officers from front group to front group. And they were clearly evolving and targeting their organizations and their operations at, at different segments of society. So it started with a really heavy focus on cultural exchanges and using that to send people overseas and, and build connections. And then in the 90s, gained this quite significant and extremely effective, in my opinion, focus on targeting policymakers, academics through setting up a Chinese think tank. And I should note, uh, as you've just uh, commented, but uh, explicitly draw it out that you do this through um, open source uh, intelligence, as, as you've noted, you're, you, you've spent the time to go through and look at the records uh, of these organizations, um, public records, government records, when you can find them, you use addresses to say that this organization is essentially co-located with a known MSS uh, entity uh, and, and the individuals use the same uh, addresses. So it's an incredible piece of forensic work and research and, and, and detective work. Um, but I think it's, it, it will be shocking to a lot of Westerners because you're naming names, you're naming, you're naming names on both ends. You're naming names on the Chinese side of institutions that have invited me and people that I've engaged with. Um, but then you're also naming names on the other side of those who have continuously engaged, uh, perhaps when they knew better or or they shouldn't have. Uh, and you spend a lot of time talking in particular about the China Reform Forum, which is no longer as important uh, an entity and venue uh, as it was uh, a couple decades ago. But many of the individuals engaged with it have gone on to other things. Um, but it doesn't stop with just, you know, with one organization. It, it, it seems that almost every organization that Westerners engage with in China, at least in your telling, uh, because of the names that you bring up, is, is uh, deriving from MSS uh, original uh, impetuses, right? It's it, it's being either set up or it was co-opted or simply placing people in. Um, can you talk a little bit uh, about China Reform Forum uh, and uh, why it was so important, and then some of the others that that you indicate in the book? Yeah, China Reform Forum was set up in the 1990s originally to focus on economic exchanges and sort of talking about and promoting this idea of China's economic reform. But it pretty quickly pivoted towards, I think, a broader political influence operation. <clears throat> and you can see this based on the kinds of officers who turned up in China Reform Forum and how it changed its affiliation with the party. And quite uniquely, it was given an affiliation uh, with the Central Party School, which, which is really unique among Chinese think tanks. Uh, this is the top training institution of Chinese Communist Party leaders. It is uh, typically overseen by a leader in waiting. Xi Jinping, Hu Jintao had both served as president uh, of, of the Central Party School. And because of that, I think it, it, it kind of placed China Reform Forum and by extension, these MSS officers who are running it as gatekeepers to the Chinese leadership. And it positioned this think tank as having unique insights into the direction of China and 
and and as I show through the through looking at you know conversations people had with China Reform Forum, WikiLeaks cables that cited sources at China Reform Forum, uh, they were pushing clearly disingenuous ideas that China would inevitably democratize, that it would reckon with the legacy of the Tiananmen massacre, that it would you know overturn verdicts of past purged politicians who were deemed to be too open and, and reformist inside the Chinese Communist Party. So this was not just uh, a think tank set up by the MSS to gather intelligence. It was set up to shape the perceptions of foreigners, to, to mediate access to information about the Chinese Communist Party, all towards this goal of, of pushing an idea that China was peacefully rising, that it was going to become a more liberal, a more democratic place. And that the worst thing the US could do would be to restrain China, to to push harder on China to actually make some of these changes. Doing so, in the words of these MSS officers, would only encourage hardliners within the Chinese Communist Party to take power and be more uh, anti-US. But another really interesting thing on that point you made about the integration across society and different organizations is that China Reform Forum isn't just MSS officers. It brings in members from across prominent positions in Chinese society and, and particularly those who are engaged with the foreign world. And it's not everyone, but it's it's a pretty significant number of the prominent interlocutors uh, with, with people in the West uh, who, who quite clearly, you know, through the fact that they've been brought into this MSS front organization, have a relationship with the part of the MSS that engages in covert influence operations. Yeah, well, first, for anyone who is listening to the podcast, immediately rewind about the last three minutes, because what, Alex, you just said is is really the core. And uh, I, I can, you know, ask again, and we can go over it again, but you've really just identified the core. The point was to create a very compelling and effective, and in fact, in a way, how, how would I put it, um, operationalized narrative of where China was going, and therefore how the United States and other countries needed to react to that reform, opening up, democratization, liberalization, cooperation, and so on uh, and so forth, a sort of a, a meta view of China in the world and a meta view of US-China relations that justified a uh, uh, an engagement paradigm, an engagement strategy on the part of the US which itself became privileged above everything else, meaning engagement became an end, not just a means, whereas engagement should have been a means to some other end. It became the end itself. Uh, and your, your painstaking uh, reconstruction of the China Reform Forum uh, and other fronts, multiple fronts, um, really shows the sophistication of what the MSS was doing in you know, Beijing broadly, but it, but there were also, and, and this is, is so interesting to me, there were also both overt MSS groups such as Kicker, which, which, you know, I've been to, and most of us have been to, I've also been to the central party school on, on delegations. Uh, many of us have, but Kicker, which is the, um, uh, China International and Contemporary China, China Institutes for Contemporary and Contemporary and International Relations. Yeah, I'm having trouble with my or, or as I call it, the MSS 11th. Right, I, I'm having trouble with my acronyms today. So uh, yes, Kicker, 
which is very well known, but also known as, M as an MSS fund, as you just mentioned, the 11th Bureau. And so when you go in, everyone tells you, you know, it's MSS, but you're still going to have good conversations. But then you even highlight ones which just, just took me by surprise, such as the Buddhist organizations and the role that they play, which almost entirely invisible to us because it's focused primarily on Asia, primarily on Southeast Asia and Oceania or, or South China Sea and the like, uh, down uh, on Hainan and Nanhai. It, it's fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about the weaponization uh, of religion? And then I want to talk more broadly about how successful influence has been. Yeah, this this that was really one of the things I most enjoyed researching and writing about in the book was was this interface between Chinese Buddhism and the MSS, and I think it's it's something that's played out across different Chinese intelligence agencies as you see them plugging into Buddhist communities in China and and using them for international covert operations. and And my starting point here uh, was looking at the Shanghai State Security Bureau. This is sort of the Shanghai wing of the MSS that has been really heavily involved and prolific in operations against Western countries, the US in particular. It's, it's tried to seed people into the CIA. It's recruited ex-US intelligence and, and State Department officials. Uh, and it's, so it's seen as one of the sort of slicker operators in the Chinese intelligence community. <clears throat> and what it was doing was uh, it was backing uh, the construction of one of the world's largest Buddhist statues in Hainan Island. Uh, and it was doing it through, you know, quite an elaborate series of fronts and, and networks where you have uh, an old villa in Shanghai, an art deco villa from, from, from before the communists took over that I found out online was actually owned by the Shanghai State Security Bureau. And that at the same address as that villa, you had a charity registered and then because it's a charity, it has publicly available annual reports. And I pulled those up and I could see uh, the charity was holding its meetings at the headquarters of the Shanghai State Security Bureau. And that it was receiving all these mysterious donations from a Buddhist charity in Hainan Island. And then I looked into it and sort of peeled back this story where you actually had Shanghai State Security Bureau offices funding and, and overseeing the construction of this you know, 108 meter high Guanyin statue on Hainan Island. It's a centerpiece now of China's International Buddhist Academy. And to this day, you have Shanghai state security people uh, involved in these activities. And so it's, it's, a, it's an incredible operation where you've got you know, one of China's top Buddhist monks as well, running this temple on Hainan Island, really presenting himself as sort of China's Buddhist diplomat going out to the world trying to win monks over to this idea of a one China policy of China's dominance in the South China Sea, but also building up connections with politically engaged Buddhist figures in countries like Mongolia and bringing them back to Hainan for training where, you know, my, my educated guess is they're being cultivated and targeted by the Shanghai State Security Bureau. So look, we shouldn't um, pretend uh, that we are, you know, um, somehow uh, purer in in tactics uh, than anyone else, because obviously during the Cold War, the United States and its allies also used culture, cultural institutions, and and exchange institutions um, to promote messages. Uh, you know uh, that we wanted elites and the general populace to accept to to um, uh, to engage with elites to um, some would say you know subvert. Or, 
uh, suborn elites. You know, we used the Congress of Cultural Freedom. We used Encounter Magazine, you know, government funded. Um, I think the difference is that you know CIA agents weren't on the you know weren't on the payroll of Encounter Magazine. There was funding from them. So again, the the it's it's not that these are tactics that only the Chinese have used, um, but the extra element that you talk about, which is, you know, the direct MSS use of this for, um, well, again, both for the influencing element and then for potentially co-opting element. The the question, I guess, that then rises, and here, let's be honest, it gets, it, it, you know, we're all involved, right? So it gets, it gets sensitive, is why do you think the Western elites who were so targeted were so receptive? and um, engaged in this? Why were they so willing to do this? And, and in the book, it's, it's not entirely clear sometimes when, uh, and, and because it, it's clear it's almost impossible to, to know when they knew and they should have known better uh, or when they didn't know and they might have suspected or when they simply didn't know. But why do you think it was that the Western elites, which you know basically we have to say all of us, were so willing to engage with these groups and even go to a place like kicker which you knew was was part of the mss what 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 was it and how did china play on that yeah it's it's a really it's a really tricky subject to explain you know i think there are so many different experiences people have had with these organizations and and different attitudes people had going into them uh and you know different problems they might have had coming out uh but but overall i think you know china had a lot of its work done for it by the West already, you know, it wasn't manufacturing from scratch this idea that China was liberalizing, that this was inevitable, that it was going to become a democracy. I think it really recognized that these were ideas that were already there in the West, that already had currency, and it just sought to amplify them to create experiences within China that backed up that worldview, that reinforced that idea and empowered people to go back to the United States and say, you know, I've, I've been to China I've had these meetings with people right in the core of the Chinese Communist Party who are in the know, who are sort of free agents with special access. And what they're telling me, you know, is that the Chinese Communist Party really is moving in this direction of peaceful rise, of reform, of, of liberalization. So it wasn't, you know, because you can you can put out an idea, but you have to do so much more to really give it currency for it to take hold. So I think they really were smart in realizing that, you know, you just take an idea that's already there. And, and reinforce it and encourage it. And that's what was really successful. But a, a big mistake I think a lot of other people have made, you know, engaging with Kicker, for example, was just not appreciating, firstly, its integration with operations and how, and just seeing it as a think tank affiliated with the Ministry of State Security when it's a bureau of the Ministry of State Security. You know, you wouldn't call a division of the CIA, you know, an organization affiliated with the CIA, it just is the CIA. And that's what Kicker is. And the fact that a lot of these people who built their relationships with foreigners around the world through Kicker then moved into the MSS 12th Bureau, which handled China Reform Forum, which was running these covert elite influence operations, shows that there's, there's a very clear connection and, and, and not much of a, a division between the kind of overt exchanges of Kicker and then covert work that is designed to, to, to work to quite you know, pernicious ends. And also the fact that, you know, the MSS simply, you know, we shouldn't just assume that the MSS is in the business of educating foreigners on China. 
And I think this is one of the mistakes people have made. You know, I've talked to people here who were in the Australian intelligence community engaging with Kicker at the time. And, you know, they weren't going into these meetings kind of trying to sort out truth from facts, you know, really reading between the lines of what they were hearing. They, they thought they were engaging with, you know, fellow intelligence analysts from the Chinese community who were just sharing their assessments, basically. But I think the, you know, the, the fact that it's plugged into this influence part of the MSS shows that you can't take what Kicker is saying at face value. That doesn't mean that it's pointless to engage with it. I think there's a lot of benefit out of uh, hearing what Kicker is saying and, and analyzing that. But I think that it hasn't been done carefully enough and it's contributed to these false narratives of, of Chinese democratization and so on. Yeah, and, and you mentioned uh, in a different context, business just a second ago. And a big part of the book is talking about business in two senses. First sense is the businesses that the MSS has set up. So it's a very, it's a it's a holistic system. It's an integrated system uh, of, of obviously government, the government agency, MSS itself, uh, these front groups that it uh, has set up, but then businesses that feed into it, that fund them, that that sometimes in, in the case of the Buddhist uh, organizations actually then get money from the Buddhist organization that it helped set up and helped fund. This is a very sophisticated uh, economic operation. That's the first sense of business. The second sense of business, as you point out, particularly in talking about the former Australian premier, Bob Hawke, but you could have talked about many others, is using these cultural organizations and the access that they provide to cre to um, create relationships that then redound to business, personal business, right? Trade, business, and the like. Uh, that's, I think, where your book touches uh, closest to other books that have come out uh, more recently, um, Peter Schweitzer's Red Handed or Isaac Stonefish's America Second, other, other books like that, that really talk then about the Chinese use of business as itself a um and an entrapping i guess we might put it that way but certainly an inducement to be positive uh we can look at what the corporations have done in terms of self-censorship and uh and the like uh you talk a little bit less about that but but this use of business is i think the the again the very holistic picture that that you provide um what i'd like to ask you then is the harder question of assessment of all of this. Um, how do you measure the success of influence campaigns? One thing you just said, which I think is very nuanced, very, very interesting and important is that in many cases, the MSS and these groups, China Reform Forum or whoever, did not make up these ideas whole cloth, right? Out of whole cloth. Rather, they existed, pre-existed in the West. The idea that China was going to be cooperative or that it would democratize or liberalize or whatever, um, so that there was a receptive soil in which to plant these seeds or, or water these seeds that were already planted. So how do you, how do we measure it? Have, have they, has their investment paid off? Uh, how would we know if it's paid off? Would, would it have paid off even if they didn't do this? Would, would everything that's happened over the past 20 years of acceptance of China have happened without the MSS and China Reform Forum and Kicker and everyone else? Yeah, I think I think it's probably one of the hardest things to answer about influence operations. And people had the same problem during the Cold War, trying to trying to quantify it, trying to measure influence work. And I think the conclusion they came to back then was that explaining it through narratives and case studies uh, of you know actual operations was really the best way to 
to give an overview of an influence operation, but there's, there really aren't generally good ways to, to measure these activities, especially not their effectiveness when you're playing in the space of ideas of, of policy and you often don't know exactly why someone is doing that. People don't know exactly why they're doing what they're doing. So much of this is, is quite mysterious. Uh, but I think that, you know, we might know more about this in, in coming decades, hopefully, as I think there are more retrospective looks at how China engagement was carried out, how China policy was made, and the role of MSS co-optees and assets in those activities. Because certainly in Australia, uh, you know, people who now, according to media reports, you know, our security intelligence agency has informed politicians uh, that they're agents of influence who've been donating to politicians, who've been really key conduits for Australia-China engagement, and I think have set a lot of the, the, the narratives, a lot of the guardrails, a lot of the, uh, the landscape of Australia-China relations. The fact that a lot of these people have, had, have worked for the United Front Work Department, have worked for the Ministry of State Security, I think that, you know, that really challenges a lot of the assumptions on which China engagement was built in the past. And as we learn more about this, I think I'm always struck uh, by uh, just how many of these key figures in engagement were worked on by intelligence agencies or on the Chinese side was, were working for intelligence agencies. So, you know, it's hard to attribute exactly, you know, which policies were due to MSS influence operations. But I think that the MSS really permeates a lot of China's engagement with the outside world, but because it does that covertly, uh, it's really hard to actually uh, to overstate uh, the, the importance of that. And I think, to me, one of the things that was a really striking example, not necessarily of the decisive role of, of China Reform Forum in, in shaping US policy, but I think the fact that it, it really framed the debate, it, it gave a concept and a framework to this, to all these kind of different ideas about how China would democratize and, and become more like us and, and liberalize and reform, you know, through this concept of China's peaceful rise, which was put out by China Reform Forum, was the fact that when uh, Robert Zellick gave his speech introducing the policy, uh, the US policy of engaging with China and towards the goal of making it a responsible stakeholder, in, in the international system, he actually started this speech by saying, you know, I've just come back from Beijing, where I had the pleasure of spending many hours with Zheng Bijian, the, the chairman of China Reform Forum, and essentially positioning this group uh, as in the speech, you know, a prime example of the kinds of reformist voices that the US needed to encourage inside China, uh, not knowing that this was actually an MSS operation. To me, that that makes it undeniable that you know, at some level, this this really was informing how the U.S. understood China. Yeah, and and we should note, and again, it's 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 difficult. Although we're we're I think becoming, I hope we're becoming better at acknowledging these things. You're you're very unsparing, not only of individuals but of organizations, institutions, think tanks uh, in the U.S. You know, I work in a think tank. I've worked in think tanks for years. You don't, I think, uh, talk as much about universities. They are certainly as culpable uh, in their own ways, but you do talk a lot about the think tanks sitting closer to the center of power in Washington, D.C., where, where I am. Uh, and again, that that um, uh, that sort of devil's bargain, I think, that many of them decided to make, right, which is 
depending on where you were, but I think there were a lot of places, certainly in my own experience, where you knew things were a little odd and fishy, um, but you went because a, a group was going and you felt it was better to talk than not to talk. I think your point about the degree to which some at some points people said, well, you know, these really are just analysts trying to give us their view versus very, very overt messaging is, is an important one. Um, you know, I'm sure everyone in retrospect say, well, I knew, you know, I'd, I'd like to say that I was always skeptical. And I think there were people I knew who were always very skeptical. Um, but you get wrapped up into it because as you pointed out, and this is really, is just a staggering idea that the MSS has, uh, involved itself, if not created, so much of China's engagement with the outer world intellectually, culturally, and the like, right? It, it's it's not that there's one or two. It's a you, you list organization after organization, most of them with the words China, people, and friendship in them in some sort of permutation, which should be the dead giveaway right there, but uh, that all of them are involved. So, I guess a different question to ask, an interesting one, is if during your research, were you able to assess the degree to which the Chinese, whether it was MSS or Zhongnanhai or whoever, themselves assessed the success of their influence campaigns? Did, did they think it was working? Were they confident with it or they just didn't care? They were going to do it anyway. Yeah, I think um, probably one of the, the most clearest examples was the reaction to the 96 Clinton campaign donation scandal, where there was extremely, you know, prominent media and uh, political attention placed on the fact that essentially proxies for Chinese military intelligence had donated to Bill Clinton's presidential campaigns. Very well documented if, if you want to go read about it. Uh, but there was such a backlash to that. A lot of the donations were returned. This is kind of made China look bad, although it didn't have any serious effects on, on US-China relations. Uh, and what I found was a paper written by a top MSS officer in, I think, about 1998, who just returned from a post in Washington, DC as an under, undercover as a journalist. And his paper was called How to Strengthen Work on US Congress. So he was actually looking at these 96 Clinton campaign donations and trying to think of ways to do it better and making this point that, um, you know, there's more to the US politics than the presidency and we've neglected Congress and Congress is what has held US policy back from being more pro-China, even though he assessed that, you know, Clinton had a really good relationship with China. And so he proposed all these really long-term measures to, to build influence over Congress that really maps out quite perfectly with what actually happened. So, uh, you know, creating think tanks to engage with members of Congress. And a real emphasis of his in this paper was um, using Chinese scholars to engage with uh, organizations, think tanks, and politicians in the United States, because in his words, they have a kind of unofficial or semi-official uh, appearance. They don't seem like they've been tasked by the Chinese government to carry out these sorts of activities. And, you know, they can seem to confide in people. And this is certainly what I found, you know, interviewing people and reading people's accounts of interactions with either MSS officers posing as academics or academics who, who were clearly working for the Ministry of State Security is that, you know, in, in the words of, of, of one, one person who was meeting an MSS officer, he referred to him, you know, not knowing he was MSS, 
as one of those sort of rare free agents in the Chinese government with, with no bureaucracy sitting on top of him. So he was able to sort of voice his views, to set up meetings, to make connections and be helpful in a way that other people that he was meeting with in, in China uh, didn't seem to be. Uh, so these, so naturally, these people really became, I think, pretty important parts of people's engagement with China. A lot of people befriended them, I think, not really understanding that, you know, even if these, it's it's really nothing to do with whether these people are good or bad. It's just the fact that they're working with Chinese intelligence agencies, that they've spent decades uh, participating in intelligence operations, and that you can't separate that easily, I think, from what they say and how you engage with them. So bringing the story up to today then, and, and what you do is you go through a lot of history of uh, primarily the 1990s and, and 2000s, and, and you often you also talk earlier, you talk about the history of the MSS, which was founded in 1983. Um, but I'd like to ask a, a few questions about today, uh, because really your book is a, a, it's a book of warning. I mean, it's a, it's a book to, first of all, it's a great read too, by the way. I mean, it's just, it, 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 reads in some ways almost like a thriller, you know, just page turner, because of course, if you've done this, you're looking for the names that you know, and the institutions and organizations that that you were involved with. Um, but the first first question is, is there a main successor to the China Reform Forum today? Meaning, you know, what, what, who does, who do people have to look out for today? Yeah, so it's, it's become harder to track. And this is, this is a interesting. Huh. So I think that one of the things the West had going for it in decades past was that even though the MSS was was large, it was active, it was involved in these influence operations, it genuinely didn't have the kinds of sophisticated tradecraft and you know really advanced operational training that a lot of other well, some other intelligence agencies have. It wasn't as as hardcore as Russian intelligence or the CIA. Uh, Part of that was because, you know, influence operations don't require that. Uh, you don't need fancy gadgets to, to befriend and, and cultivate someone and just shape their opinions and, and offer them access to China. Uh, but what's happened now is that as U.S.-China relations have uh, become more tense, well, actually even before then, you know, China has recognized, I think, for decades that the U.S. is really its main threat in its, its assessment and that it needs to prepare for struggle against the United States. So the MSS probably about two decades ago really started, I think more fo focusing much more on the United States and about a decade ago specifically set up a bureau for US operations when previously these were quite spread across different parts of the Ministry of State Security. And with events like the MSS's destruction of CIA networks in China around 2010, 2012, uh, what's happening since then is that Chinese intelligence agencies are simply getting better at what they do. They're reacting to more scrutiny of their activities, of, of the heightened sort of battle between intelligence agencies in China and the West, essentially. Uh, they're just getting better at what they're doing. And uh, so we no longer have, uh, you know, I don't expect that in 20 years, someone can go back and, and track these influence operations in the same way that I've been able to. Uh, because they're just going to be better hidden. I mean, a lot of that is still out there. Uh, pretty much all of the front organizations I write about in the book are still out there, but that clandestine, professional, sort of more hardcore side uh, is probably just becoming more and more of a thing. And, and this is really worrying. 
Well, that that leads then and and almost answers the next question I wanted to ask, which was, does the, in your view, the publicity that you've brought to this and others have brought to it, Clive Hamilton and Marika Olberg's Hidden Hand, uh, of course, uh, John Garneau, whom you work with and, and work with a couple of uh, of my colleagues, including Matt Pottinger, uh, Anne Marie Brady, uh, and you you quote Peter Mattis and Matt Brazil uh, and their great book on on Chinese espionage. Does the publicity that you and these other scholars and researchers have brought to this um, reduce the success of these influence campaigns? Meaning we are we are more aware of it. At least some of us are. I would say it's hard not to be. Um, do you think that that and at one point it, near the end of the book, you talk about sunshine as the best disinfectant, but you've also just said now that it's harder to figure out where the sunshine needs to shine on, right? So does the publicity that you're bringing uh, reduce the success of of what the MSS and these front groups are doing? I think overall it does. Uh, you know it's it's suddenly gradually becoming harder to study. Uh, they're They're becoming better at hiding activities. Uh, information is is disappearing from the internet, but it's not not yet at the point where it's impossible to study. There's still far too much information out there for me to analyze on my own, for example. Um, but yeah, as as I say in the book, sunshine really is the best disinfectant, in my opinion, and that's the lesson from Australia that actually the deterrent effect, the the publicity, the exposure of CCP influence operations was really almost entirely, not not entirely, but almost entirely from uh, civil society, from media and from academics writing about and documenting these activities. And that triggered legislation and government actions, which which had its own deterrent effect. But I think it's it's really only been uh, people outside government who've actually shunned light on most of these activities in Australia and, and caused this massive backlash uh, because you just can't fight uh, covert influence operations in the dark. I think you can fight espionage in the dark. You know that's something that doesn't need to be out there on on on, on in newspapers. Uh, but when it's about ideas, uh, when it's about the nature and the very heart of engagement with China, when it's about key strategic decisions and policy towards China, uh, you know people deserve to know what narratives Chinese intelligence agencies are pushing who they're pushing them through, where they're having successes, uh, the le- different levers that are being pulled. Uh, you know, I think I think simply saying that the MSS was behind the very concept of China's peaceful rise is an incredible rebuttal to the sincerity of China, the Chinese government's belief in, uh, in, in peaceful rise. So that's something that you can't get out of stopping influence operations uh, just in the dark. So I really believe that Shining a light on these activity, exposing them, uh, is, is a really important part of um, of combating it. So, have you, uh, in your view, how much have uh, have two changes that have that have occurred affected China's ability um, to carry out these campaigns? One is COVID, and the other is Xi Jinping. So, before COVID. Um, there was certainly a clamping down of 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 civil society and and some of that at least was explained here as uh you know a reduction in the types of exchanges that people had become so used to between China and the West in the 90s and and 2000s the second of course has been 
COVID, right? Which essentially just shut down direct exchanges. Um, and right now, certainly with zero COVID and and other problems that that China faces, um, we may not see uh, a quick return to the type of of trips and conferences and hostings on both sides that we saw before. But more significantly, probably, is that Xi Jinping isn't going anywhere. And and in fact, if anything, is is even further appears to be further clamping down. Does this at all uh, negatively affect the MSS's? strategy and and operations in terms of foreign interference and and uh, uh, influence campaigns absolutely I think I think the you know the the true nature of Chinese Communist Party strategy and ambition is is pretty much undeniable now in the sense that you know it's not seeking to become part of the existing international order it wants to 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 revise it it wants to repurpose it uh, it wants to assert its power, it wants to invade Taiwan. Uh, it's not peacefully rising. Uh, and I think that, you know, so peaceful rise, peaceful development, these concepts really have very little currency now. Um, and and that key tool for influence operations of trips to China, junkets, conferences, those sorts of exchanges, you know, those, those are going to, you know, those totally dried up with COVID and are starting to kick back up again, but I think will never be quite what they were in the past. But that's that's mainly the situation I think in Western countries, you know, in the United States, in Australia, in the UK, and and to some extent in Europe, where I really now see kind of the key frontier for a lot of these CCP influence operations being uh, is other regions, so Southeast Asia. Pacific Islands, Central Asia, uh, Africa, for example, where you can even see that front groups that where China knows, the US knows these are front groups and therefore doesn't really use them for operations against the United States. They will still use some of the same cover for operations in Southeast Asia or Africa and so on, because it's, it's, it's an environment where there's almost no scrutiny of these kinds of activities. The, the kind of political discussion about China is very different. You know, most of these countries don't see themselves as being part of, of, of competition with China. Uh, and, and so I think, that, and also much weaker democratic institutions in many of these countries. So this, this really makes it a kind of perfect ground to take place you know, through elite capture, through corruption, uh, through the kinds of cultivation uh, that, that 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 were used with extreme success against some people in Western countries, and I think we might even have more success uh, in Southeast Asia, for example. It's fascinating that you mentioned that because it really does seem to track, and maybe even to an even greater extent, uh, the history of the KGB that was revealed in the Mitrochin archives. Which, if if people haven't read it, the the two volumes. I think there actually may have been three, but I, I I have two and I know of two. The first volume that sort of focused on the core of the Cold War as we would consider it, right? KGB operations, which were both direct action, but but there were influence operations and attempts to uh, you know, buy elites and and do a lot of the things that you're talking about with China. But do those in America, do those in um Europe and Western Europe, what we, you know, we consider the core allies. The second volume actually talked about the the fight in the third world 
And that's a, it's an area that most Americans don't think about, right? They would think about Berlin or they'd think about Paris and London and certainly Washington, D.C. They didn't think about you know, Ghana or, or, um, you know, or Lagos or, uh, you know, Buenos Aires or, or, you know, Manila. And, and what you're talking about now really is, is an incredibly complicating aspect because in Washington, um, there's finally, I think, you know, more attention being paid to one belt, one road as an economic aspect. You do talk about that in the book. Um, but also just the pure influence campaigns, as we saw in the Solomon Islands, for example, right? Buying off elites directly. Um, but but what that reveals of Beijing's interests in these areas, right? The Americans, sadly, don't pay that much attention to Oceania. They don't pay attention to the Pacific Islands. Beijing does. And now you're adding on a different another layer, which is it's hard enough directly to deal with uh, you know, with the PLA Navy doing visits uh and direct bribery of elites. Even harder now is when you layer on the type of influence campaigns that you're talking about, and that, to your point, being potentially worldwide now. So to 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 wrap up, because you know we've covered a lot of ground, um, you know if if you had the ear of the prime minister or or the president, you know it's one of these typical questions, you know, if you were a tree, what would you be? But um, you know what what would you say? what is what are the three core? you know, policy recommendations you would make now if, as you point out, Spies and Lies, your book really talks about the easy stuff in a way, right? Because you said it's getting harder. So if it is getting harder and it is broadening, what are the what are the three things that that our leaders need to be thinking about in order to respond in the coming decade and more? Yeah. So firstly, I'd say that we just need to better study these influence operations. Uh, I just don't think they're well understood and we won't combat them effectively until we really understand how it integrates with intelligence agencies, how it integrates with business, how it integrates with organized crime. Instead of viewing these areas as, as separate, we need to understand how the Chinese Communist Party integrates these activities for covert influence. And I don't think we're at that point yet. And kind of part of that is just emphasizing open source research, uh, kind of careful forensic investigations, relying on open sources, really can tell you a lot about that and answer a lot of those questions. And that just hasn't been taken advantage of. And they're a really key tool for fighting back against influence because you know this isn't classified information. This is stuff that I found on my computer and I pieced together and I can put out publicly through a book. Um, so just researching it and investing in the capability to actually do that and then secondly, you know, the need to develop a domestic strategy to counter interference or counter, you know, covert influence from China. I think the U.S. is still still working on that. And that really should be a priority because this is something that just hampers your ability to make policy. It hampers your ability to discuss China, frankly. And I still see that, you know, happening to some extent in the United States. And then finally, uh, recognizing that even if you you broadly have things under control domestically, even if you're not gonna, you're not at risk of you know a president coming in and flipping back to believing in in peaceful rise, uh, that's not the case in all these other countries that I talked about, and it's not even the case in a lot of Western countries. You know, you know, Canada is still really struggling to 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 recognize and respond to the problem of of covert influence, where you know we recently had credible media coverage. And reporting on the fact that 
about a dozen politicians in Canada received donations ultimately from uh, the Chinese government, which is which is covert. Uh, so just recognizing that there's there's actually, you know, countering foreign interference needs to be integrated into foreign policy. This is not just a problem for the US. It's it's a key part of how the US and other countries actually compete with China is by countering its foreign interference operations in places like the Solomon Islands, because we can pump in aid, we can pump in investment, we can pump in all sorts of exchanges and build up, build them up with these countries. But that is so easily undermined, I think, by you know, a simple MSS operation. And I just I think that should be a priority for governments. It should be a priority for intelligence agencies to understand these countries around these activities around the world. Well, Alex, uh, this has really been a, a fascinating talk, and um, I, I know as you, you mentioned, you're in um, you're in private consulting now, but it, it seems you really have a a major role, public role to play going forward. I think both academically and and on the policy side in Australia, and I would I would hope here in the U.S. and and in all democracies and open societies that that care about this type of subversion and, and influence and interference. Um, so we've been talking with Alex Josky. The book is Spies and Lies, How China's Greatest Covert Operations Fooled the World. If you've, uh, if you've been in, in that world of, of uh, Asia and, and China studies, um, this is a book that you need to read because you're going to, you're going to see a lot of names that you recognize and and organizations that you recognize if you're not in that world then you need to read it because you can't really understand how those who deal with china have been influenced by it often in covert ways and why everything you you've heard about things like peaceful rise were actually very carefully and sophisticatedly crafted government policies that were covertly introduced into western discourse um, so it's a phenomenal book. Uh, Alex, it, it's really uh, an accomplishment to do that at such a young age. So congratulations. Uh, I hope that you'll continue to do this work. And I really appreciate you joining us today on the Pacific Century. Thanks so much. I'm really glad you enjoyed the book and, you know, fantastic questions. I hope all your listeners enjoy it too. So for the Pacific Century, this is Misha Oslin. Uh, we thank you for listening and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.